You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Hello, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Lakin. And I'm Tim Warden. And we have some really unique research to share with you today. Today, our guest is Dr. Inga Wolfram. I read some of Dr. Wolfram's uh, research when I was going through grad school. And at the time, I thought it was really, really revolutionary. Uh, she was looking at coordination dynamics between horses and riders. So said differently, like how well is a rider able to sit on the horse's back and coordinate their body to match what's going on beneath them with the horse? And it's just a really unique way to look at sport and trying to understand the relationship that we're trying to foster between two different species. Um, and then since that time, she's she did her PhD in sports psychology. And then she's done a lot of just really, really fascinating work looking at what is the current state of how we interact with our horses? Like, what does that look like in terms of sport uh, aspects? So, in terms of performance, uh, in terms of welfare, and which I'll talk a little bit more about today in terms of sustainability. So, it's unlike anything that we've uh, covered before on the episodes. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it, and I'll pass it over to Nicole to tell you more. Thanks, Tim. Uh, Dr. Inga Wolfram was recently appointed as Professor of Sustainable Equestrianism at the University of Applied Sciences, Van Hall Laurenstein in the Netherlands. I know I butchered that, but that's as good as we're going to get today, folks. She holds an MSc in Human and Equine Sports Science and a PhD in Rider Psychology. Her previous research ranged from rider personality, effective mood states, and mental skills training to horse-rider coordination dynamics, judging bias and visual search behavior. She's worked with equestrians from grassroots to the international level and has published several books about rider psychology and the horse-rider interaction. She's passionate about equestrian sports and even more passionate about making it future-proof. Inga's current research focuses on how the equine sector can transition towards more sustainability and longevity. So let's get to the interview. Hello, Inga. It's so great to have you here today on the Sport Horse Podcast. Welcome. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Tim. Really excited to be here. It's really good to be on the show. Awesome. So I'm going to kick it off. Uh, I, I know that you recently started in your new position as professor of sustainable equestrianism at Van Hall Larenstein University. I hope I didn't just butcher that name, but you can correct me. <laughs> um, uh, University of Applied Sciences. So could you describe for us a bit about your role there and what you'll be examining moving forward? Yes, of course. Sure. Um, well, um, the pronunciation is Van Hal Larenstein, but you did a really good job. Um, <laughs> You're being very kind. Well, well, to be honest, I was already glad that you didn't say, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people, when I, when I say, you know, sustainable equestrianism, the first question I get, well, I get kind of a blank look. Um in part, that is, of course, because sustainability is a word that we hear all the time at the moment, especially, uh, you know, with the summer we've had, which, um, you know, which I guess uh, you guys must have had. I don't know. Uh, perhaps your summers are always hot. But here uh, in the Netherlands, in Europe, uh, once again, it was a scorcher. And so, you know, you open the papers, or, you know, look online and it's all about sustainability. But it's also become a bit of a buzzword. You know, you can. It's so broad. Um that it offers lots of opportunities to examine lots of different factors. 
Um, but it also means that people sometimes um, perhaps fail to realize what that's actually all about. What am I going to focus on in my research chair? Well, I get this question quite a lot um, these last few weeks, really. And in order to give myself a bit of an outline, but also to start with a starting point, really, um, I'm sticking to the definition by the United Nations Brundtland Commission, meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Very long sentence, but really captures what we're about to also in equestrian sports. How can we make sure that the things that we do today don't jeopardize our sport for the future? The longevity of our horses, the harmonious interaction with our horses, but of course also sustainability in terms of environmental uh, impact that we might have as a sector in terms of our, if you like, our footprint, our hoof print, how are we as a sector sustainable from an environmental perspective? You know, what do we do? Obviously, our sector, you know, uh, we drive, if, if we have cars, uh, so if we, if we have cars, if we have uh, a trailer then, or, or uh, you know, or a lorry, uh, obviously you'll need a, a, a car to tow the trailer with. Um, uh, also, you know, we have additional stuff that we purchase for our horses. Uh, we're also talking about, you know, we need bedding, we need feed. So what what kind of issues are involved there? You know, what is our footprint? Um, the other uh, side of the coin, if you like, um, is how can horses actually benefit environment? How can we integrate um, the natural environment in which the horses live with perhaps the more urbanized areas? You know, that's something that's particularly relevant here in the Netherlands where uh, space is limited, you know, and where, you know, you, you'll you'll drive through a town or a city and, and all of a sudden you're, you know, standing in the middle of a field or, almost. But, um, and then we've also got um, natural areas that are actually protected. So, so horses can actually also serve as a buffer between those areas. You know, so how can we help in terms of biodiversity, um, in increasing the link between, uh, um, you know, the way horses are kept and managed and natural habitats. Um, and then lastly, and I guess that's the issue um, that at this point in time is on everybody's mind, and that's sustainable welfare and sustainable horse rider interaction. How do we make sure that what we do with our horses actually preserves the sport for the future? Um, you know, uh, we want to enjoy our horses for longer. That basically means doing things that, that you know, keep them healthy um, using, of course, evidence-based uh, knowledge to that informs our training. And, um, and this is why I think a show such as yours is a really, really good way forward to disseminate that kind of information. You know, it's a fun format. I really hope it'll still be fun by the time I'm done with it. Now, it's a fun <laughs> format. Um, it, it, it tells people about the practical impl implementations of research um, that might hopefully help people make the decisions that they need in their training. That's, that's and, yeah, really... and those essentially are sort of the three areas that I'm going to be trying to focus on 
uh, not being able to do everything at once, but in terms of priorities, I think, um, yeah, starting with uh, longevity, uh, welfare training, and then uh, moving from there. That, that's really interesting. Um, I, I feel like there's so much to dive into in, in so little time. But, but the one thing as you were chatting there that kept coming back in my mind is I think that the horse world to date, as I perceive it, it's it's very reactive. I think it's sort of like a problem comes up and then we we identify the problem, maybe sometimes too late, and then we try to pivot. And I feel like a chair like this has a really important purpose to serve in terms of better quantifying what's actually happening right now in terms of these impacts and looking a little bit towards the future, right? Like I, uh, when I talk to my friends who are grooms, like I know that something that's really on their mind and a lot of them are very concerned about is these competition schedules that have existed for the last 10, 15 years where, you know, you, you go to Barcelona, Spain, or you go to this area or this area, because that's the date on the calendar as the climate changes. Like it's, it seems like every year it's more and more stress for the horse and that it's really hard for the show organizers. Like they do certain things to try to, to mute that impact. But at a certain point, like it is just really hard when Spain's at, you know, 40 degrees Celsius to be sending horses down there in the middle of the summer. Um, so I, I think that that is really, really interesting. And is that something that you're hoping your research will start to guide a little bit more as being a bit more predictive and starting to say, you know, like this is sort of what the world is going to look like in maybe five, 10 years, and then we can start planning and adjusting stuff to be ready for that. You have an excellent point here, Tim. I, I couldn't agree more that, that the way our world is moving, both in terms of climate change, but also in terms of what may be considered good training, what's acceptable, um, actually demands that we look more closely at what we've always done. So there's a lot of behavior change involved here. And uh, I think you just hinted at it, that you said, you know, we've got an incredibly traditional sector um, industry and because we've always done things like this. And, and you know, and we're, when we're talking about routines, you know, routines are a really good thing for people. Um, but routines can also be tricky because try and break them. And um, and this is really what we're facing right now. We are at, at a we're at the point that that we're about to pivot as a society, but also with the sport. You know, you just mentioned it yourself. Climate change has has a real impact on what we can do with our horses. You know, the temperatures, all the rest of it, the climate, um, which basically means we have to adapt to it. Um, the same goes for you know our training practices. Um, there, there's some things that we really know from research now that you should or shouldn't do, but because people in the past have always done things like this and, you know, and, and have been taught, not because somebody wanted to teach something that wasn't true, but simply because it's, you've always done it like this. So how do you change this? And this is certainly something that is underpins all the themes that I was just chatting about, and that's behavior change. How do we guide people um, through this transition? Because a lot of the time, that's not just about knowledge. It's not just about evidence. Because I guess we all know that you can tell people about something, but whether they're going to implement it, it's a, it's a completely different story. Uh, you have to have knowledge and skills to do something, but you also have to have the physical opportunity to do stuff, right? You have to, you know, you have to either have the money or the space or the opportunity. And you also have to have the social backing. So if you like the social opportunity, 
if your immediate environment says, no, no, you're crazy, this is not really a good idea, and just keep doing what you've always done, you won't change. Um, and those, you know, the knowledge and the opportunity will also influence your motivation to do something. It'll, they'll also influence the habits, uh, you know, whether you're going to start a new habit or just stick to your old one, whether you might adjust your goal setting. And these three factors, the capability, the opportunity and the motivation will influence your behavior. But you can't just influence those different aspects purely by communicating knowledge. There's also something such as, you know, um, uh, engaging, uh, you know, using a bit more of an emotional undertone, um, trying to uh, um, yeah, engage a social network. But sometimes we might also have to develop new rules and regulations that um, that underline the importance of a framework so that people know, OK, I'm allowed to do this, but I'm not allowed to do that. Sometimes you have to be really clear as to what we accept and what we don't. And I'm not necessarily in favor of, of trying to, to um, be really strict about rules and regulations, but I think sometimes, especially when, when we're uh, uh, in a period of change, we might have to think about, hey, perhaps we have to adjust certain rules and regulations simply because the circumstances have changed, making it easier um, to sort of outline um, where we have to go from here. So, I. I'm thinking uh, a lot about climate change because it's the example you gave and it is really relevant here. Um, and um, also, you know, anytime you want to make any kind of major change, you kind of need a, a carrot and a stick usually, unless you just have a giant stick. Um, but um, I, you know, like I, I grew up in a time that I remember, um, you know, as, as an American millennial, just the debate of pure, like, is climate change real? Um, you know, like a grown adults looking at the science and saying it was made up and um, not passing any kind of regulation for very long until a younger generation that believed in it came and kind of said, okay, enough. And then we started seeing, you know, what you talked about this summer in Europe with the the wildly high temperatures and these insane hurricanes and storms and increased wildfires and all of these things that become make it more and more difficult to deny what's happening. Um, and so I'm curious if you think this is the kind of thing that it's it's going to take waiting for a younger generation who maybe has started learning some of the newer information, has a little more interest in the science um, because they were introduced to it um, at an earlier point, if that's part of the puzzle here in making change. Um, and if that's the case, you know, is, are we going to end up in the same boat that we're in with climate change where like maybe we waited too long? Well, I'm trying to look at things from a positive angle because if I don't, <laughs> it'll get really very depressing. Please, please. <laughs> no. Um, well, two things, and I'm going to start with an example where you guys are going to think, what's she going to talk about now? Okay, the Copernican Revolution. And you're thinking, what? No. But many years ago, people thought that the sun revolved around the earth, right? 
Then Copernicus came and said, no, sorry, guys, all these astronomical models that you've been working on are wrong. It's actually the Earth that moves around the sun. And it's, it's the same with Darwin, who all of a sudden told people, you know, how genetic evolution actually happens. Um, but I quite like the model about Copernicus simply because I think it's it's very central to what we're talking about here. People initially, they 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 declared him stupid. They, they declared him a lunatic. Nobody would speak to him. Why? Because because you had you had a society that was built on a scientific paradigm. The paradigm being that the sun moves around the earth, right? And then all of a sudden there was scientific evidence that was that was showing that that was not the case. But people had always, you know, those are routines, habits. People had always lived and worked and built their whole whole identity on that paradigm. And all of a sudden they were asked to change not just their behavior, but also the way they saw themselves as fitting into the world. And I know it's sounding very philosophical right now, but I think it's quite important that we realize that our whole identity um, is closely integrated to the world in which we live. So by, by saying, no, but that world actually looks quite different now, and we might have to look at that world differently, can be quite scary. So I think, Nicole, you have a very good point that you're saying, does it need another generation? So yes, I think so, simply because their identity isn't so closely interlinked with that old world, if I can say it like that. But also, um, sometimes, you know, change takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. And, and there's always chaos first, you know, especially when we're talking about a paradigm shift. And in our case, the paradigm shift is, is, is we as human beings, we've always thought that the environment and animals, that they, that they rotate around us, you know, that, that the human is central to it all. But actually, we're now starting to realize that that's not the case, that we as humans actually have to consider that the environment might actually be central and that we might have to revolve around the environment. Does that make any sense what I'm trying to say? Yeah. But obviously, that's a real paradigm shift. And that can be quite scary. And people have to get used to it. And But Tim, um, no, was it Tim or Nicole? Oh, no, uh, Nicole. Uh, we also need a carrot. So, so just saying a stick um, will actually make people, um, well, a lot of people will react negatively quite simply because they don't know what else to do. So I think it's really important that we try and show people what they can do to make a difference. And yes, people might say, yes, but it's just a drop of water in a massive ocean. But what is an ocean if not lots and lots and lots of drops of water? So, and and I and I know this is, and I know people might think, yeah, but am I really going to make a difference? But the thing is, if everybody thinks, yeah, but I'm not going to make a difference, then we won't make a difference. But if everybody thinks, yes, but I can perhaps contribute by perhaps um, thinking about, uh, um, do I really need that second pair of bridges? Um, you know, do do I really need another pink saddle pad? Do I really need so uh, that is also something that might contribute? You know, can I not just buy stuff secondhand? 
Um, so in that sense, that's the environmental perspective that I think is also really relevant to us. Yeah, it's it's just so interesting to like hear this perspective because I think it's really unique. It's really fun to to listen to you, and uh, it it links back a little bit or a lot to some of the research you've done in the past. And um, when I was a PhD student going through, I remember in 2013 uh, you published an article in Human Movement Science that looked at coordination dynamics between between horses and riders. But a lot of that is also related back to sort of these these steady states of attraction right between horse and rider and if you need to make a change like, it's so hard to to bump them out of that yeah. uh but like the one thing that came up in your paper that i, I wanted to dive into because i think that uh, our listeners will you know be fascinated to learn about this was that when you went through and you did your research I'll, I'll let you explain more about how you actually did that but you found that there was the highest degree of i guess coordination between the horse and the rider at the canter gate so i'll maybe let you dive into that a little bit more and and to tell our listeners sort of that story. Yeah, thanks Tim. And I think actually you made an excellent job of sort of linking what we've discussed right now to, to uh, uh, um, horse rider coordination dynamics. But I, I think you've got a really good point because this is all about the relationship between horses and riders. And you can measure this in lots of different ways. Um, you know, we can measure this more from a philosophical point of view, from a psychological point of view, but also biomechanical point of view. Um, and in many ways, that's also the start, you know, sort of measure the status quo, try and figure out, so how do we actually, how do we interact with the animal from a purely yeah, biomechanical point of view? Um, because we're always talking, you know, when we're, when, we're, when, when we're learning about riding, when we're riding ourselves, it's always like, yeah, you need to be with the horse. You know, you shouldn't be disturbing the horse. You should need to be sitting independently from the horse, whatever that might mean. Um, because at the same time, they also say you should be with the horse. So how can you then sit independently? But, you know, this is probably another show altogether talking about the language that we use that nobody else understands, apart from when you're part of the industry. So what we did here is that um, we we actually we used IMUs, inertial measurement units, um, uh, actually one sensor on the sternum of the rider and one sensor um, on the well, essentially the sternum of the horse, but we sort of stuck it uh, um, underneath uh, the 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 girth uh, between the horse's legs. Um, with the idea behind it, and that that was based on previous research that had been done that. Um, and obviously there's there's much more research going on now. So any other researcher who's now listening to this, um, I apologize in advance. I know that the science is much more advanced now and we'd probably be able to do this much more elaborately now. But at the time, it was really fun to um, to, to actually measure using using just one single sensor. And, and, you know, we didn't claim to be able to measure any lameness issue, issues or asymmetries. All we were interested in is when the horse moves, does the rider move? And obviously, we this was a, a system that, you know, really basic, really, but that you could switch on and off at the same time. So you didn't have any uh, synchronicity issues there. So you really know that you measured both the horse and rider at exactly the same moment. And then we, we literally put horse and rider through their paces, measuring um, their, their really their, their phasing, their phase differences in walk, trot and canter. And what we're interested in is literally how synchronous are the two? What are the relative, relative phase differences? And 
you see the 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 fun thing always in research is is when you can actually either um support a claim from uh from practice or uh refute it but in this case uh, you know the adage that that a canter is the easiest to sit to and the walk the most difficult pace to actually ride um well we actually found this um and there was you know the, the differences in terms of rider horse rider synchronization were significantly different between um walk and canter and to some extent also trot um but you could really see that riders found it easiest to stay with the horse, um, to actually move with the horse in canter. And in walk, where we're actually talking about uh, um, um, a four-tact rhythm, you know, where, where the horse actually moves four legs independently, riders actually found it really quite difficult to stay in harmony, if you like, with the horse. While in canter, when you've got a three-beat with um, a suspension phase, Rider actually managed to um, stay with the movement much better. Well, and my explanation really is um, is that in the walk you actually have to, you know, because you've got the four beat with all the four legs moving independently from one another, you never get a respite as a rider to reorganize yourself. If that makes any sense at all. Um, Nicole, you're um, um, a professional show jumper, right? Amateur, very much an amateur, but thank you. Yeah, no, <laughs> yes, but, on the but, show jumper part. Yeah, but but <laughs> so obviously you'll be working lots in walk and lots in canter. I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, so, so what? So so the walk bit, you, know, you actually have to be quite supple through your hips, really, in order to sort of move. And yeah, our listeners can't see this now, but I'm actually moving. Um, as I'm trying to demonstrate, which nobody knows. Um, and that's actually really quite difficult in walk to be able to sort of stay, you know, with your hips uh, in tune, at the same time, try and stay nice and steady upright with your upper body, you know, using your core stability, which Tim, I'm quite sure that you as a, as a, as a uh, sports scientist, you'll also appreciate, and we're talking about core stability. Um, while you know trying to keep upright uh, on the on the on the upper part of your body, but still sort of staying nice and relaxed, uh, while not sitting like a sack of potatoes. So that's actually really quite a big task. While in canter, a you've got this nice flowing motion. It's it, you know it, it, it's rhythmical, but you also have that suspension phase. You know when all the four feet are off the ground, um, when there's actually not that much happening for that very short piece of time where where you can actually sort of readjust yourself. That's my explanation, um, and it was my explanation at the time. Uh, and whenever I, I, I must admit, um, I used to I used to vault gymnastics on horseback as a child. So my favorite pace has always been canter as well. Um, but I think in part that's why, because I because you always have that moment where you kind of kind of rearrange yourself. Um, does that make does that kind of ring a bell? I'm actually quite curious, Nicole, whether you kind of think, oh yeah, that's uh, what I feel, or or completely not. Yeah, absolutely. I think two things. One, um, I think maybe we don't realize it as much in the walk because, especially as you become experienced, 
over and, you know, accumulate a lot of time in the saddle, you don't really think that much about the walk unless you're actually trying to engage the horse to, to work at the walk. Um, but you're not thinking so much about your own position in the saddle because it feels sort of second nature. Um, but, uh, it absolutely makes sense. Um, and then on, on the flip side, I, for a time taught, um, some like really beginner level lessons. And, um, I always remember, you know, kids are usually intimidated the first time that they go to canner, but once you actually get them into the canner, they can sit in the saddle and they feel so much more comfortable than they do at the trot. It's just, a uh, their brain realizing that they're not actually going that much faster. It's just a different, yeah. a different gait. So, uh, it's really interesting to contextualize it that way. Yeah. Absolutely. But the fun thing is what you were just saying also that, that you don't, uh, as riders, uh, we get so used to it and there we are again with the whole habit thing. That's also partly, you know, Tim, um, that was really a neat way of starting this. You know, we might be looking at biomechanics and then I can tell somebody, yeah, that's what it is and then try and change it. Well, good luck to you, uh, especially when we're talking about closed and open loop uh, uh, learning in, in in movement. You know, once that learning loop is closed, eh? you learn a certain movement, how to execute it and try and break that chain is really, really difficult. Trying to to be reflective of your own riding is I think is I think really key in, in all of this. Yeah. Really, really good points and really, really interesting to, to hear everyone's uh thoughts on this. And Nicole, like as you, who's someone who's still like riding at a high level and, and going through this whole process, like, yeah, really curious to hear like your perception of the, the research. I'll maybe put you on the spot again, Nicole. Cause I think like the, <laughs> the one other thing in this paper that came out, which maybe wasn't like a, a main finding, but it, it was in there. If I remember correctly, was that cause you, you did this testing sort of across the, the whole trial, right? Inga. And it, the question is like, or what I'll ask you, Nicole, like, do you think that as we spend more and more time in the saddle during a session, the people would become more and more coordinated? So I guess said differently, as we warm up, do you think we become in like better unison with a horse? Or do you think we get in the saddle and we're the same right away as we are at the end of the workout? I mean, I think with everything, every athlete is different. Um, I know for myself, as I work through my, my early mid thirties. Um, I definitely take some time to warm up and get a little bit, um, more supple and better able to follow the motion as I go. Um, I also think it depends on the horse that you're riding. I think there's horses that similarly take some time to warm up, need a little bit different warm up than others and others that just come out of the stall and they're, you know, loose as can be and ready to, to go to work. Um, so yeah, I hate, I hate going with the old, it depends. Um, but, um, <laughs> I, I think it really is a case by case basis, both with the horse and rider. Um, I know that in my days also of riding, you know, like eight plus horses a day, there's also a, a point of diminishing returns where <laughs> you're so you're getting physically tired. Um, and so, that could go either way. It could go that you're really just going with the motion and you're having a harder time um, having your brain tell your body to do something differently or that you kind of stiffen up and you're like, okay, this is going to be a, this, this is going to be a light, a light ride, you know, cause it's number eight on my list. Um, so uh, 
yeah, apologies for all of the the caveats there, but oh, I think you have a really good point though. If I made him, sorry, but yeah, no. no I, it, I think to be honest, I think you're spot on. Um, the the research that we did, you know, it was uh, uh, it was in that sense limited. You know, we didn't do hundreds of horse rider combinations. You know, that the so in essence, essentially, what you're saying is is uh, I think completely correct. We, we didn't find we we actually didn't find a difference. We actually found that there was no significant difference uh, from the warm up to later on in the session. There was also no difference between left and right, which was super interesting because you always think that, you know, you have a favorite side and all the rest of it. Um, but I'm also giving you this caveat because I'm thinking, you know, if one was to dive in a little bit more, you know, perhaps using horses that were slightly uh, more stiff when first coming out of the stable, etc., then you might find some differences. But, and I guess this is coming back to this point of, of habits uh, also in terms of movement, we don't actually substantially change the way we move, even if we that we think that we do. And in many ways, that's a, that's a good thing. But that's, I guess, also one of the dangers of horse sports is that we get so used to what we do and it feels so normal. Um, so you can sort of sit really crooked all the time um, and think that that's normal. Um, perhaps fun to actually tell this story. I was... Um, I've got a relatively new horse. I bought a horse six weeks ago uh, because I felt that I couldn't be a professor of sustainable equestrianism and not have a horse because I haven't had a horse for three years. And I and I thought this was a great excuse to buy another horse. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and uh, he's seven. But, you know, and and he's, he's well schooled, but, you know, but not at the highest level. And I was, you know, and I was sort of, you know, trying to build him up slowly. And I was doing a little bit of, of leg yielding. And to the right, he was doing it really well, and he was just kind of moving across really well. So I, you know, changed the rein onto the left rein, and expecting him to just also move, but he just wouldn't. You know, he just uh, he just turned into a banana, and you know, and and you know, and and quickened his paces, everything, but just not moving across. And I was thinking, okay, so what's going on here? And obviously, then that's the nice bit that I'm still. I'm not the best rider, but I'm still then enough of a sports psych and all the rest of it to kind of think, okay, you mustn't get angry now and, um, you know, try and think about so what might be going, what might be going wrong. So I went back onto the right rein and I really tried to sort of figure out, okay, so what am I doing with my right, with my right leg, with my left hand? And I thought, okay, so I'm actually shifting my right leg from the hip bone backwards. So then I moved back onto the other rein and I put my left leg back. And what happened? I couldn't actually shift my leg from the hip. So what I'd done is I'd only moved my calf back, but I hadn't realized I was doing it. And my horse just didn't get it. And I understand that he didn't because he was thinking, what do you want me to do? So then I, you know, and so then I went down to walk and sort of wiggled a bit in my seat to kind of loosen up my hip. And then I did it again and really made a conscious effort to move my left leg back. And all of a sudden the horse could leg yield. And to me, it was, just such a, I'm thinking, okay, so this is one of the, one of the dangers also, or perhaps, no, we're going to formulate things positively. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really good to, to consider, to, to try and be reflective every time we sit on a horse. And if the horse isn't answering our request, not immediately go, not immediately go and blame the horse, but Consider that we are creatures of habit. 
and we get used to our habits. So chances are that we might have got used to something, to a certain movement that we always do like this, and the horse just simply doesn't understand. So, so trying to sort of, what's what I'm looking for, trying to separate the different parts of movement within yourself and thinking about, okay, but what if I do things slightly differently? How will he react then? Rather than, you know, trying to keep bashing on with the same aid. Because to be honest, to me, that's also sustainability in horse training. Trying to find always the the harmonious solution to a training issue and looking at ourselves first you know perhaps it's just me because I just got used to doing it like this it's so interesting that you said that I very I've been um with my dog going through a therapy dog training program um and we're we're set to graduate next week so very exciting but um somebody asked me he's he's a really good dog in general but he's just like really excelled in in the class and where other people have dogs that they've done you know hours and hours of professional training and their dogs get distracted and they get excited and whatever and they get so frustrated and so um i was asked you know like what have you learned uh, the most in this class. And I said, honestly, like being a, a, a lifetime, you know, horse person and, and growing up riding my whole life, I learned pretty young that if an animal isn't doing what you want them to, it's probably because you're asking them the wrong way. Um, and that there's a right and wrong way for each animal too. So, um, you. you know, if he doesn't do what I'm asking him to do right away, meaning my dog, I probably need to try asking him differently. And, and so it's a, it's been a really, really fun to like build that part of my relationship with my dog that, um, came from working with the horses for so long and, and reminding myself always in moments of like, why isn't this working, you know, kind of thing like, okay, let's just try something different there. The horse is just reacting to what's being, you know, told to them in this moment. They're not, most likely not bringing with them a ton of preconceived ideas about me. So I should let go of my preconceived ideas about them. Um, I think that's brilliant. (laughs) Nicole, I think you just captured this beautifully. What I guess sustainability in equestrian sports is all about is this idea that for one, it's really important that we as, as riders, as owners, that we always look at ourselves, what our role and our responsibility is in terms of the behavior that that we show and that we um, adopt the behavior that fits the situation um, and also the individual needs of our animals. Um, And and secondly, that we're open to to look at ourselves at all times Um, um, and that we're also prepared for change, really, and that we are open to it because you never know, you might actually get a beautiful result if only you're willing to just change that, just that little bit. I, I think those are great, great words and uh, a, a great way to wrap up this podcast. Um, before we let you go, I have two questions this time. Because I think the first one, um, I imagine as people are listening to this, there may be a lot of younger people who are really interested to know, are you starting up a lab? Like, are you looking for grad students and undergrad students? right now or? I always am yeah I always am I, th- I think if I was going back to school like I think uh maybe a trip to Netherlands to uh <laughs> to be involved in this would be in my future because I think it's really fascinating and it's very uh very timely work that's being done 
Well, the fun thing is, is that um, nowadays, you know, with teams, it's actually possible to also supervise students and to do collaborations uh, across the channel. So, um, yeah, obviously, a trip to the Netherlands is always nice, uh, but in terms of sustainability and, you know, <laughs> flying and all the rest of it. But uh, but obviously, I'm always open to exchange ideas. And if students are saying, hey, you know, I'd really like to write my thesis on this, uh, do get in touch. Yeah, definitely. And we'll uh, include some links to uh, like your profiles uh, in in the notes so people can uh, reach out if they would like to. And then the last question we have. So if you could talk directly to a horse and they would understand what you're trying to communicate to them, what would you want to tell them? Bear with me. I'm trying my best. <laughs> no, hang on, hang on. Let me just think about this. If I could talk to Marengo, my horse now, and the horses I've had in the past, I'd say, You're so important to me, and I pledge to do my best every single day to give you the best life possible. Sometimes I might not do a really good job, but I'm going to try and do better tomorrow. That's fantastic. Well, that's really soppy. Never mind. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, and hopefully we'll have you back on soon to talk about, um, you know, the 8,000 other things that we could have spent hours talking about today. So that was a really, really interesting perspective from Inga. Uh, I think it's always fascinating to look at a problem or in this case, like what sport is, which is, you know, we're, we're trying to make the, the best uh, outcomes for the athletes, which are the horses and the riders that we can. I think it's always really interesting to look at that from different perspectives. And like Inga for sure comes at it with a really unique perspective from both the sports psychology side, as well as more of a biomechanics and sort of a, a learning and motor behavior uh, aspect. And I think it's, it's just always fascinating that no matter where you look at uh, a certain issue or problem from, there's always a lot of overlap in terms of what the, the answer truly is. And, and so she's talking about sustainability and, you know, how do we make sure that we're doing right for the horses? And uh, how do we make sure that the sport not only survives today, but five, 10, a hundred years from now. And a, a lot of that comes back to just good training pro, uh, practices. So we truly trying to build a connection with your horse, truly trying to understand uh, what cues you need to give at what times to get that outcome. I think it, it all just comes back to good horsemanship. So always a fascinating discussion when you uh, start off, I guess, uh, in one area, sort of, and more the sustainability side, but you're pulling all these little tidbits of information that can be then plugged into an actual training program. So that that's what I really loved about today's discussion. Yeah, I found it really eye-opening and I, I really took a minute and reflected back on really all of the episodes that we've done so far and how um, each expert has really great insights on how we can make small changes to improve our programs and um, increase the longevity of our, of our horses and, um, you know, focus on, on solving specific problems and challenges around either performance or soundness or fitness. Um, But Inga really pulled it all together in terms of talking about, um, you know, how to influence and, and encourage the right kinds of changes that, as you just said, Tim, are, are going to help the sport be a little more future-proof and um, do what's right for the sport and the animals and equestrians in the long term and not just what seems right today. So um, it, it really gave me 
some a sense of optimism, I think, about the potential of making some positive changes. Because sometimes in a sport as traditional as, um, you know, horse sports, I think it feels like you're just, you know, fighting an uphill battle and and there's never going to be any real positive change. And, and it also makes you question sometimes whether you're even right to be pushing the change. So um, really a lot of great food for thought and um, as we mentioned during our episode, uh, during our episode, hopefully we'll have Inga back uh, to talk about more of her, her research in the future. She was an awesome guest and has a really, really great and unique perspective, like you said. So that's a wrap for today's episode. You can find the links to today's guest and the show notes at www.sporthorsepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at Sport Horse Series and on Facebook at Sport Horse Series as well. We also hope that you'll take a minute to like and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening. It helps other people to find the podcast. So we really appreciate if you could just take a few minutes to do that. Also, following us will make sure that you never miss an episode. We release episodes uh, twice a month on the 10th and the 25th. And following us will make sure that you will um, get the news first as soon as it's released. You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Just go to the App Store and search Horse Radio Network. Here's to keeping your horses happy and healthy.